Hi, Alabaster Jar listeners. I'm Dr. Beth Felker-Jones, and my intro theology class is one of the classes that we'll be hosting uh, folks for the Taste of Northern coming up. I hope you'll join us. We'll be talking that night about one of my favorite topics, the Holy Spirit, the personal, present God with us in our lives. So we'll look forward to welcoming visitors that night. I know the students are excited to welcome visitors as well, and we'd love for you to come get a taste and join the conversation. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we talk about issues that impact women at the intersection of faith, ministry, and theology. On today's podcast, our host, Dr. Lynn Koig, is joined by Dr. Beth Felker-Jones. Hi, Beth. So good to talk with you today. Absolutely. Glad to be with you all. Well, and I'm excited. Serene and I are excited to talk with you about doctrine um, and all things theology. Um, but we thought maybe we'd do it in celebration of the second edition of your book, Practicing Christian Doctrine, but get at it in a way that might uh, might seem unusual to a lot of people, but fits our theme for the month of February here on the Alabaster Jar, which is celebrating female saints. And you really rely on love, as do I, uh, Julian of Norwich and her shoeings or her uh, revelation that um, that shaped in some ways uh, doctrine in the, what is she, 14th century? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit? I, I remember reading Julian of Norwich when I was in graduate school. And I think, and that was you know, way back in the horse and buggy days. But I think she's kind of had, uh, a people have been interested in her again. Could you fill out for us the story of who she is? And then, you know, talk a little bit about her theology and why, and then from there, we'll kind of just segue into doing theology today. Yeah, happy to. Julian is one of my favorites, and I could talk about her uh, for a long time. Uh, I, too, read her uh, first in graduate school and didn't care for her very much uh, because the theology is a different style from uh, a lot of what we think of as theology. And I think I also got the message that that kind of theology was less interesting and important than classic male theology, right? Um, but over the years, um, I've grown up uh, uh, and uh, learned more from Julian uh, over over time. Uh, there's so much there. Uh, she writes the first book of theology, the first Christian book um, that we know of by a woman in the English language. Uh, and uh, it is an account of this series of showings or revelations she received from God. Right? So uh, a variety of images, which uh, she interprets uh, in all kinds of ways theologically. Um, and she's often known as a mystic uh, because she's talking about her direct encounter with God, right? Uh, but that too is a gendered category, I think. Women are often known as mystics. Uh, and maybe it's a safe category for women because uh, she's not claiming to be the theologian, right? Uh, and uh, so she's doing her work in this way that uh, is, is acceptable uh, for a woman, but maybe not just acceptable, but maybe 
in a special way, something women have access to, right? That comes from her experience uh, as well. Um, her visions are very bodily uh, and uh, we can imagine her bodily experience as a woman, right? Uh, perhaps as a mother, we don't know a ton about her actual history, but she, it's been speculated that she was a mother and had a family before she entered into her uh, her later life. Um, yeah, and she was really sick, right? Like there, there was this moment of crisis. That's right, she thought she was dying uh, when she received uh, these visions. Um, and then she sits on them for years uh, before she uh, writes them out and, and interprets them. And I, I think about that, right? She, as far as we know, she has this one big moment right, of uh, experience of God. And then it sustains her for, for decades. And she thinks about it the whole time. And she writes her interpretations of it. And she gifts it to us uh, to, to help sustain us too, right? Uh, which is pretty incredible. Um, but though she's this mystic, right? Uh, she's also talking about Christian theology, right? The big themes of scripture, creation, sin, redemption, how does all that work? Um, and she's doing it in a really sophisticated way. Uh, she clearly knows a lot about the conversation, uh, about the scriptures, but also about uh, the, the theological tradition. How does she know? We don't know, right? But it's fascinating. Um, and she she puts that all together uh, into this, this book for us. So in her later life, she took a church office, which was called uh, an anchorite. Uh, it sounds really strange to us, uh, but it was a kind of dedicated prayer person. Um, uh, so dedicated, in fact, that they were walled into a room in the church. Uh, so when she took this on, uh, the door would have been bricked up so that she would never leave until her death. Um, in the Middle Ages, you can't call a friend for prayer at three in the morning. But if you need somebody, you know Julian's there because she's uh, not going anywhere. Uh, she has three windows, uh, one to the church, um, one uh, to uh, those who take care of her, who, who bring her her food and do her laundry and so on, uh, and one to the street where you can come in and get counsel and, and talk to her. Um, and I just love that image, right, of, of dedicating her uh, self in place um, in a way uh, that lets her be there for the church and participate also in the life of the church. Uh, and sometimes in her work, gently critique the church while also loving it. Uh, that's yes. the work of a theologian. Absolutely. And there are some lines uh, from her work that have made it even into popular culture now. One of them I'm thinking of is the line, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the context of that claim that she makes? Yeah, so so well known, and it kind of sings, it comes near the end of her book. Um, and she's summing up all these things she's learned from God. Uh, and she says, I tried to put it all together. I tried to understand it. And the Lord showed me the meaning was love. Um, and because that's the case, then all shall be well, right? It's a kind of steadfast hope in God's bringing about God's good future, right? Uh, the future that is ours uh, in Christ. I think it can be trite um, if it comes sort of out of nowhere. Everything's going to be fine, right? Uh, but for Julian, it's not. It's born from years of reflection. It's born out of 
deep suffering and loss, right? And when you've been through all that and you're able to come out on the other side uh, with this uh, sure faith uh, in God's good uh, intentions for all of the creation, which he loves, um, then uh, it means it means everything. Um, so I think uh, I'm still learning how to sit with Julian in that, that hope and confidence uh, that all shall be well. She also mentions uh, the hazelnut. Yes. In fact, when I taught this class, yeah, years ago, one of one of the students afterwards gave me a hazelnut. I carried around in my purse for a long time. Unfortunately, somehow it got lost. But I mean, for years, I had that hazelnut. Do you want to talk a little bit about why that mattered? It's part of her vision, in a way, why the hazelnut became so important. Yeah, it's it's one of her most famous visions, uh, and it's of uh, what she calls a little thing, the size of a hazelnut, right, uh, sitting in her hand, right. So you can picture the smallness compared to the the bigness of uh, a human human hand and a human life. Uh, and God reveals to her that that is all that has been made. Uh, it's a, a vision of uh, the smallness of creation in relation to the bigness of God, um, of the dependence of creation um, on God, and then most importantly, uh, of the fact that God loves creation, right? Um, uh, I talk about this this vision in the book, uh, Practicing Christian Doctrine, in the chapter on creation. And I think right there, Julian sums up uh, a lot of the great Christian teachings on creation, right? God made it, uh, God loves it. Uh, God's holding it uh, in his love. And uh, that's, yeah, uh, a really beautiful vision and one that people have meditated on through the centuries. And it, it, it's absolutely beautiful. I remember when I was in grad school reading it, I was also pregnant mm-hmm. and going to be a mother for the first time. And she talks about Jesus using the label mother, which can make people nervous. Um, but she's regarded as an orthodox theologian. You know, she's not speaking heretically. So what is what is she trying to accomplish? Or how, how does this idea of mother mm-hmm. and Jesus come together to help her understand who Jesus is better? I, I just taught Julian in a class on theology of the body, and the students were really struck by her imagery of Jesus as our mother, Christ our true uh, mother. Yeah, so... Um, that female language for God makes people nervous because are we sticking with the doctrine of the Trinity? So I think one of the one of the interesting things to say about Juliet is she is, right? She also uses the traditional language, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Um, and I think it's significant and interesting that it's Jesus and not the Father or the Spirit who she uses this language for, right? Uh, it makes it, for one thing, clear that it's a metaphor. Um, uh, She's not trying to uh, shift something uh, out of our Trinitarian understanding of who God is, right? We know Jesus is actually a human man. And also then uh, she unpacks this mother metaphor uh, in in really beautiful ways. Um, uh, If we think about it, uh, Jesus himself uses uh, maternal imagery, right? uh, how he longs to gather right Jerusalem under his wings like a like a mother hen, um, and the idea of new birth, right, uh, of being born again, is itself a maternal image. Um, uh, should I go back into my mother's womb, right, a second time? Uh, no, but 
in a metaphorical way, we go into into Jesus's uh, womb. Um, there's reflection there in the Middle Ages about uh, Christ feeding us as being like a mother nursing a baby, um, uh, and of his gathering, yeah, gathering of his children uh, together. Uh, in fact, uh, Julian says that Christ is the true mother, um, and that all other mothers sort of find what it means to mother um, in him. So anyway, uh, it's a nice combination of surprise and subtlety and picking up on biblical themes um, and holding with the tradition, but also uh, pushing the tradition to include an experience that a lot of men might not have thought of. uh, And she does it in a really beautiful way. And the church in her time accepted that in part because of, as you say, their understanding of communion and how that that's a way that we're fed with with real grace. I think that's right. She's not actually super well known in her time, um, but she does avoid, you know, being tried as a heretic, which is kind of a feat. So, <laughs> yes, yes, they weren't shy about pointing out problems uh, indeed, with theology. <laughs> indeed, um, and over time, certainly the church affirms uh, her work as as good and true. Well, you mentioned a little bit here about your book, um, Practicing Christian Doctrine, which we celebrate its second edition. So yay for that out of Baker Academic, which is fantastic. And I I love the title, Practicing Christian Doctrine, like it's practicing. I, I kind of tend to think of doctrine as just knowing right beliefs, but mm-hmm. you chose that title for a reason. Talk a little bit about why you chose practicing Christian doctrine. Yeah, thanks for loving it. Um, uh, that idea of practicing gets at really the most central conviction of my life and my work, uh, which is that good theology matters for good Christian practice. That is for how we actually live our lives, right? It matters for discipleship. It matters for the church. Uh, There's at least a double meaning there. Uh, The book is an intro to theology. So we're practicing just in the sense of kind of learning the language, learning the themes and so on. Uh, But we're also practicing uh, in the sense of living out our faith uh, and seeing how uh, the teachings of theology matter for our bodies and our relationships and our worship and our mission. Uh, And uh, I think that's the most exciting thing that there is, uh, really. Uh, And we all keep practicing, right, our whole lives long. That is, we're always still learning. We're always still, you know, running drills, uh, but we're also putting into um, into reality uh, what our faith looks like. And you talk about, uh, in the intro, it made me smile, when people ask you what you do and you respond, I'm a theologian, what's the typical response? Yeah, that's a conversation killer. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of silence, right? Or, yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> why... Why do you think that is? And maybe part of it too is that you're a woman. And so maybe they think, why is a woman doing theology? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I do think it's probably gendered in certain ways um, in the way that people expect all kinds of uh, callings in the church to to be primarily male, right? I also just think people don't know what theology is um, and they suspect that it's kind of strange and arcane uh, and it's something done by nerds in an office that doesn't have anything to do with our actual practices in our lives, right? Um, and so they don't know what the next question might be or whether you might just think some really scary things that you're about to tell them uh, about. And so, you know, uh, folks 
folks often change the subject. You know, how about how about that game on Friday? <laughs> Rather than talk more. Um, and, you know, theology sometimes has been shut up in offices, um, but it shouldn't be. It should be uh, for the life of the church. Uh, and every Christian is a theologian. That is, we're all thinking about who God is and what that means. Um, and the discipline of theology uh, can help us to be better theologians uh, as we learn more about how other Christians have done this, uh, as we think together as it sends us back to the scriptures uh, to uh, grow and learn. Um, So I would love to see that be less of a scary uh, word, but it's definitely my experience that that people um, just just don't know what it's about. And I think even for students, um, if a student starts seminary, uh, they think they know what to expect in a New Testament class. They might not actually know, but they they think they know. Uh, They don't know what to expect often in a theology class, and so it could be intimidating. Um, I love to clear away as much of that intimidation as possible and just invite people into uh, this really beautiful thing that is for all believers. Well, sometimes you theologians use big words, you know, and I think that, yeah. So I'll tell a little story. Our son, when he was dating in, in college, he was dating a woman who was exploring her faith. Anyway, he finally, he came to me one day, things were not, they they were ending in a mutually nice way. But he said to me, yeah, mom, he said, you know, she just doesn't hold to the hypostatic union. (laughs) I thought, I thought, I had two thoughts immediately in my mind. One is, oh my gosh, all this money I'm spending on Christian education is really working, you know? And then my second thought was, as a biblical study scholar, what, wait, what is the hypostatic union again? <laughs> Do you want to tell us, Beth, what the hypostatic union is and what well, my son was recognizing there? Fan of the hypostatic union. It's one of my favorite things. Um, hypostatic means personal, uh, and it's just a way to describe uh, the fact that in the person Jesus, we have the union of God and human. Right. Um, which is something you can say without saying hypostatic union, uh, though, if you like words, it can be a fun technical category. Uh, I wouldn't use it on a date, particularly. So. <laughs> no. Well, and he wasn't saying that he was on a date using it. He was describing her to me and describing how as they talk about Christianity, this is what he realized. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, I'll just skate on from there. Um, but that uh, I think sometimes with theology, it's the big words that feel kind of intimidating. But you you talk about how we can actually, all of us be theologians. You mention uh, Wesley, uh, as you're from the Methodist tradition, but how Wesley understood reading scripture and thinking about experience and tradition and just all of that. Can you give us just a quick overview about how we might enter into into this. And I know Serene will have some questions as well as a pastor, like how do we bring that then into our teachings, into our small groups, you know, that sort of thing. I'd love to, and I'll try to be quick. Um, a, a question people ask a lot is, why do theology, why not just read the Bible, right? Um, and the answer is, nobody's doing that. No, no, Nobody in the world is just reading the Bible. We all live in the world, right? And so theology is about bringing the Bible into conversation with the world. Um, and one way to describe that uh, is uh, a concept uh, that comes from John Wesley. He doesn't use this term himself, but uh, it 
I think describes him reasonably well. Um, uh, the concept is called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, right? Four things. Um, and the idea that there are four things we pay attention to when we pay attention to theology. First, scripture, right? Um, but then because we're humans and we live in context, always uh, tradition, reason, and experience. Um, uh, and that can be uh, a dangerous concept if people suppose that it's sort of four equal things um, and don't remember the priority of scripture and the authority of scripture. Uh, but if you put scripture first and, and talk about its authority and priority, uh, then it's really sensible uh, to think then about how tradition, reason, and experience might help us to understand the scriptures uh, better. Uh, and, you know, tradition there, uh, it doesn't mean kind of the way we've always done things. Um, it's a way to reference uh, the conversation across the whole church about the scriptures, right? Uh, we're not just reading the scriptures alone. We're doing it with Julian of Norwick uh, and with uh, Christians who are spread across 2000 years uh, and across the whole globe. Uh, we're, we're learning together. We're talking about the word of God uh, together. Um, and uh, that enriches right, our understanding uh, of the scripture. So with turning to reason and, uh, and to experience, right? Um, we're humans. Uh, those things matter to us. They're part of our lives. Uh, and we're always going to be bringing them to our understanding of the scriptures. Uh, Theology asks us to try to do so faithfully. Beth, when you list those four areas, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, are they in that order for a reason? Do they go through the lens of first scripture, then tradition, then reason, then our experience? Is there a reason for that order? Mm -hmm. That's my preferred order, and I'll tell you why. Um, but uh, people might argue otherwise. Uh, I think for any Protestant theology, Scripture is going to come first. Right? The Protestant principle uh, is that uh, our theology comes first from Scripture as the Word of, of God. Um, but people might have various reasons to, to order the other three. Um, it's very traditional uh, to turn to Scripture, tradition, and reason, um, and if we think of John Wesley, that's what he would have been taught in theology school, right? Uh, so that addition of experience uh, is something that kind of happens in uh, the uh, revivalist tradition that is going on there around Wesley and and other Christians, right? The the big revivals um, uh, in which so many are uh, turning anew uh, to God. Anyway. Uh, to add experience then forth uh, is to say, it really matters how God is actually working in our lives, right? Um, I think uh, that addition of experience is genius. It pays attention to who we are as humans. Uh, and it's also potentially really dangerous. And so some theologians would rather we didn't admit it at all because it's subjective and so on. Uh, Wesley says, it's not any experience. It's our experience of the spirit working in our lives, right? Uh, that matters. Uh, as to the ordering of uh, tradition and reason, um, in some ways, the two of those blend into each other in all kinds of ways. Uh, but as I said, uh, tradition is a way to talk with the whole church about scripture. And so I think that comes before reason in that it's closer to scripture in certain ways. Um, and it uh, is more about the body of Christ in certain ways. Uh, and reason then next um, as an important aspect of who we are as humans. Um, and as we pay attention to God's revealed truth um, outside of scripture, right? Uh, in science, in beauty, in uh, all kinds of aspects 
aspects of, of human life. Um, so uh, if we order them, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, um, that seems to me to be an ordering from uh, most objective uh, to most subjective, from most uh, corporate, the whole body of Christ, to most individualistic. And that's why I like them in that order, um, but it's not you know, the gospel truth. That's so interesting and helpful. And I asked that question uh, coming from a place as someone who serves in ministry in a local church. So often we're engaging in scripture, often in our small groups. So, you know, a gathering of a few people reading scripture and in those spaces, it's unavoidable that we're going to bring our experience into that. A lot of times that's the language you hear in our conversations. This is how I experience this. This is how I understand the scripture or from this experience in my life, I'm now applying the scripture. And I think there can be some really great things about approaching scripture in that way, but it also calls us to um, be aware and careful of how we're guiding people in our churches to come to scripture with a right understanding, which really I think gets at the heart of what you're talking about, practicing Christian doctrine. These are these truths, but how do we practice them in our lives? So do you have any thoughts on that, Beth, as we talk about those four areas that you just described and even just approaching scripture in this way, as we think about bringing that into churches, bringing that into our small groups, how do we, how do we help one another approach scripture in the right way? Mm-hmm. So much there, right? And of course, for all of us, approaching scripture in the right way is a lifetime experience of learning and discernment. Um, none of us are, are ever getting that quite right. Um, but I hope that the study of theology does add tradition and reason in a way that, as you note, they're not obviously often there, right? Uh, in, in the small group around the table, of course, the Bible is there. And of course, we bring our experiences, uh, but we may not have, have much shared understanding, right, of other ways of thinking about it. Uh, and so I think, you know, first to sort of open up our curiosity to learn what have other Christians thought about this and why, right? Um, how might we understand this in light of philosophy, uh, uh, probably a scarier word than theology, but, um, you know, the the discipline of seeking wisdom uh, as, as rational creatures, as, as people God has made in his uh, rational uh, image. So adding, I think, I, w- I would love to see us find ways to um, uh, fill the curiosity that Christians have for more. And I think there is often a lot of curiosity for that. Um, uh, but I think we also need to talk honestly about the drawbacks of um, kind of unfiltered reliance on experience. Uh, yes, God cares about our experiences and works in them. Um, it's also the case that, that we're broken sinners um, and our experience and particularly our desires are going to be twisted under the condition of sin. Um, and we need ways to, you know, weigh that, to weigh it in light of scripture uh, and ask, um, uh, is my experience here you know, good <laughs> uh, or might God be calling me to something better or to, to a different understanding? Um, and uh, you know, one key thing about experience uh, is that uh, it can be changed by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and the Spirit is the author of the scriptures, right? And so we expect that uh, if our experience is of the spirit, it will fit with the scriptures, 
right? Um, we're not going to have uh, uh, an experience that contradicts the scriptures that is actually an experience of the Holy Spirit. Um, and looking for that fit, right, between the word of God and the way God is, is working in our lives uh, is a great way to start that discernment, I think. Um, and being willing to be honest with one another about uh, where we might be falling short. I think we're scared to do that, right? We don't want to um, discount anyone's experience. Uh, uh, but hopefully we have ways to, to seek accountability uh, and to seek you know, the more that, that God has uh, for us. Yeah. You know, one of the things is you're talking there, Beth, about experience. When things are going well, I feel like I can keep a fairly orthodox and good picture of who God is, mm -hmm. you know, based on the Apostles' Creed, let's say, and you talk about this in your book, the creeds that help us know who God is. But there are also times, like in grief, where I can, with my experience of grief, create a picture of who God is that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, or others, in trying to sort of comfort me in my grief, mm -hmm. will say things that just are not true about God. Or there's ramifications. Uh, in, in other words, they might, they in a, in a sense, e even out of uh, goodwill and intention, describe God in ways that take away his sovereignty or take away his love yeah. or make Jesus impotent in salvation or just things like that. How, how, how do we kind of inoculate ourselves uh, against that kind of bad theology while at the same time reckoning that, you know, there's certain things in life like death that really we have to grieve, mm -hmm. you know, we have to be honest in grief. How, how do you, how do we deal with that issue or, or yeah you know i know it's not one or two steps but you know how, how would you recommend the church help its yeah, parishioners I, I, with that i think it's a lifelong process of growing in wisdom and discernment right um and if we're intimate with the scriptures if we're intimate with the truth about god um uh in the good times um it helps us when the when the bad times come um but for instance, in that experience of grief, where people do often say things uh, that are not really true about God and are also hurtful to the ones who are grieving, I think it also can just help to name some of our scripts that are out there in the culture, right? Um, and then to think about them theologically, right? Uh, if if uh, I'm grieving and someone says to me, God doesn't give you more than you could handle, right? Uh, that's a cultural script, right? It's it's a line we've heard. That person means well. They're they're trying to comfort me. They're 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 trying to be helpful. Um, but it suggests that God has given me this grief, right? Uh, which is a violation of God's love. Um, God is the one who wins victory over sin and death, uh, not someone who gives death. Um, and uh, God uh, is Jesus Christ who stands at the grave of his friend and weeps um, because death is horrible, uh, which is precisely why he has come to conquer it, right? Um, and I can say those things because I've spent some time getting to know the scriptures, right? Getting to getting to know Jesus, and hopefully those things are are there for me. So I think people often just don't know what to turn to, and they pull out some line, right? Um, uh, and uh, those lines are hurtful. Um, 
I don't know. So I'm sort of suggesting study is an inoculation, and that's such a professor kind of thing to to say. <laughs> uh, but but, it, but it is it is true, you know. Uh -huh. it, like the more that you know a subject, the better you're able to integrate that subject into your whole existence. Um, and but you're talking about something even deeper, which is a relationship. You know, and so the more that we get to know the triune God, the the better we're able to understand what is true about the triune God and what is not true, however mm -hmm. well-meaning uh, mm -hmm. that, yeah, that is that is said. And I think there's a really important piece of that relationship, which is beyond words, right? Um, one of the things we know about the Spirit's work in our lives uh, is that the Spirit comes in for us when we don't have the words, right? Um, uh, prays for us when we don't know the words uh, to pray. Um, and that pushing uh, beyond words is also an important part of uh, uh, getting to know God. Uh, and it's often the deepest and best thing we have. Um, uh, so, you know, maybe we could all use training in how to comfort the grieving um, uh, and uh, look at some theological principles to help with that. That has been a, personally a comforting picture for me in my life of, of seeing that mm -hmm. when we don't have the words to say that mm -hmm. the Spirit intercedes for us. I've been in a conversation recently with some people in my church as we've been studying through the Beatitudes and Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And when we get to the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And that stirred up some different responses in our conversation that I think get at the heart of what you're saying here of our understanding of who God is and that there's a relationship there where as we become more intimately connected with God, we understand his character in a way that impacts the way that we read scripture. For some people, they read that passage and ask the question, why would I be blessed if I mourn? Does God want to give me this grief? Uh, and so it can really stir up questions in us of, as it, just as we're talking now about the topic of grief, but it gets at this bigger picture of how do we approach scripture and how does our understanding of who God is influence how we read scripture? Do you have any thoughts on that, Beth? My first thought is just, I love what you just said, right? Um, and I think uh, it's a really good picture of uh, the integratedness of what a healthy practice of theology looks like. Uh, it's reading scripture and it's experiencing the presence of the spirit, right? Um, it's words and it's that which is beyond words. Uh, it's uh, a continual deepening um, of our relationship uh, with God. Um, and relationships change us, right? They transform who we are. Um, and as we are changed, uh, the way we experience all of these things, right, uh, will change as well. You have a great line in the book, um, a number of great lines in the book. I'm going to pick one as we're coming kind of to the end of our half hour. It's been so fun. I could just keep going and going. But I did want you to reflect on this uh, sentence. Correct doctrine does not save us. Jesus saves us. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, I say this to beginning theology students on the first night of theology class, uh, and someone always fights me on it. Uh, it's easy for us to believe that the point is us getting our beliefs right, right? Lining everything up properly in our heads. Um, 
And that's a kind of works righteousness, right? To use a Protestant phrase. Um, it's a kind of attempt to save ourselves um, by performing properly. And it's also um, a misunderstanding about what we as limited human beings can know about God, which is not everything uh, we, we can know, but but not everything. Um, so it doesn't mean that bad doctrine isn't bad. Um, it hurts. It hurts us. It hurts people's relationships with God. It hurts people's ability to love and to do good work in the world. Uh, but bad doctrine doesn't damn us. Um, stubborn refusal of the truth about God is uh, a different situation, right? But getting things wrong, we get things wrong. We're human, right? Um, and uh, I think part of the nervousness people feel about theology is a fear that if they get things wrong, um, that they will not be in right relationship with God. Uh, if I can ease that fear, let me, right? Uh, we're in right relationship with God because of Jesus, um, who brings us into the love of the Father through the power of the Spirit. Uh, and uh, understanding God better through good theology is gravy on that Sunday. You don't put you don't put gravy on Sundays, do you? Hot fudge. Uh, on that biscuit, uh, hot fudge. Uh, yeah, we'll go with the hot fudge syrup on ice cream, or my husband might prefer at times that gravy on whipped potatoes that are on top of uh, chicken and waffles. That sounds perfect. It's too much for me, but that, you know, he's he's got an iron stomach, so that's what he loves. But your point is toppings, right? Like the the real core of our faith is Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And the right doctrine helps us get to know Jesus better. Jesus saves us full, full stop, right? Uh, that's right doctrine. <laughs> there you go. Hey, that's a great. <laughs> yeah. That, that is awesome. That's right, yes. Jesus saves, amen. Thanks so much, Beth, for coming on the Alabaster Jar, talking about Julian of Norwich, one of our favorite female theologians and saints of the past, and your new book, the second edition of Practicing Christian Doctrine. Encourage everybody to get it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Beth. Thanks so much. Great to be with you all. You've been listening to an episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. We've left links where you can learn more about Beth and the upcoming second edition of her book, Practicing Christian Doctrine, in today's episode description. Several times a year, Northern Seminary hosts an event called Taste of Northern, where anyone can experience Northern classes for free and with no strings attached. The next event will be held this month on February 20th, 21st, and 23rd. You can attend any of the classes virtually with Dr. Beth Felker-Jones and other professors from the comfort of your own home. It's a great way to see if Northern is the place for you as you consider further education. Visit seminary.edu forward slash taste for more information and to register. Northern Seminary is also home to a number of podcasts on theology, Bible, leadership, and mission. Each of these combine deep reflection with spirit-led innovation. You can check out the Northern Podcast Network for the full list of podcasts.